I was going to say, if you'd get the hamster out of your ass and back into the computer, we wouldn't have this problem. Yep. I'd already pushed record. Thanks, Chad. That's a great way to – <laughs> <great way to, laughs> <the intro. laughs> it's, it's my pleasure to introduce the great David J. Scowl. Did I say it correctly? You absolutely did. It's a hard C-H like school. Yeah. But you were adopted, right, in Germany? Yes, sir. Sorry, I've been doing yeah, I did all this. I did all this in mix. I did all this in mix interview. I am a German orphan, adopted by American parents who were living in Middlesex at that time, and uh, it was somewhat of a weird fashion. My dad spent his twenty-third birthday in a German prison camp after having been shot down in nineteen. Uh, 19- he was a tail gunner on a on a B twenty-four. Yeah, uh, which is funny because then years later, you know, Mick's uh, father-in-law was also a B twenty-four guy, and they did uh, the movie Unbroken about him, Louis Zamperini, and he got shot down. He was Pacific Theater though, and my dad was European Theater, which, and it was a weird fashion with uh, uh, people who, who had been vets of the Second World War in the fifties. Uh, yes, I am that old uh, to adopt German orphans my dad actually made three trips to germany and almost adopted twin girls on one trip and then they got there and then it's like it had been cherry picked and i was the only thing that left that was left and i won so <laughs> well no now which mick are you it's mick garris's that cynthia's mo- dad is that yes cynthia's dad, cynthia's dad is louis zamperini who is the uh, main who is the main character of the movie unbroken Right. Yeah. That I Angelina didn't know that Jolie was his daughter. Did. No, I did not know yeah. that was. I did not know that. Louis' daughter is Cynthia. Cynthia is Mick's wife, and there you go. Yeah. Well, Mick was great enough to do our show. You actually, I, before we're going to talk about a story, and I had all my questions up earlier, but one of the most fascinating things about you, to me, other than your great work, is you have pretty much made a living as a writer most of your life. Let me tell you something. Uh, let me say something, Joe. I have only made a living as a writer. I that's that's for my life. James uh, and I were talking about that. My friend James is down here, and I guess I should. We already introduced ourselves, but I, it's the damnedest thing, and I don't know how you do it now because it's never. It's probably never been harder, right? No, I, I like to refer to the pandemic actually as writer's paradise uh, because it is just. I got so much done in 2020. I really did. And, and, uh, uh, I have had three legitimate jobs in my life and I've been fired from all three. Two of them do not count because they are writing related. One of them was working in a bookstore. Yeah. And you all know what that means. That means half the stock comes home with me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fired. The other was working for six months on the staff of a magazine in uh, Chicago while I was trying to sort of get, get, a, get a foothold and get credits and stuff. So I don't count either of those. And the third job, actually, I should say the third job was <laughs> being a phone solicitor for a day and a half. And that was such a soul destroying enterprise. I could, I, I needed that 25 bucks really bad. And I turned my back on it at that time. And there was a period uh, early on where I decided, look, Either somebody's going to pay me for writing something or I'm going to die. And somebody had the bad taste to actually give me money for something that I was written. And it was a local newspaper in Tucson, Arizona. I sold an article 
to the Arizona Daily Star, uh, not realizing, it's like I wrote an article about how grotesque it was for people in the desert to be sun tanning all the time. <laughs> and they get that horrible reptile beef jerky, you know, flesh. What I did not realize is that when the newspaper bought the article and they bought it for their weekend section of their paper, I had my byline in color, you know, and I said, I've just written an article about how insane people must be to suntan in the desert, thereby giving the Arizona Daily Star an excuse to run four pages of women at the University of Arizona in bikinis. Victory. Victory. From man. that point, Victory. from that point, I was doomed. You know, it's like I began sending them more stuff. Pay me more, you know. <laughs> Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. I was writing book reviews for Film Comment magazine. Well. Uh, uh, I was writing film reviews for other magazines. I was doing movie reviews. I'm, I'm like the opposite of David J. Scal, my, my evil twin. You talked uh, about Because he started off writing movie. science fiction novels, and then he found yeah, – he, he – uh, and then he, he, he struck his form of gold with nonfiction. And I started off writing movie reviews and articles in nonfiction and transitioned into fiction. Yeah. So we were the, we were the opposite. We thought that if we, if we met, if we actually shook hands, the universe would end, you know. Really if you quick. Meet, if you meet your doppelganger, that's it. But really quick, I want to show you something. I knocked it down getting this computer ready. I told you, and you were telling me a story that you lived in Lexington. We'll get to that in a second. But I met you many okay. years ago at a convention in Louisville, Kentucky. It was, and I had the Wonderfest. Wonderfest, yes. And I was, I was looking through this book, and you wrote such nice words to me. Uh. Joe, go, <laughs> you wrote the same thing John Carpenter did. Go fuck yourself, Joe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. You didn't write that. No. But, but I know John did. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a story I can tell you after this because this is about you. Everyone probably who's lucky enough to have lived needs a John Carpenter story. That and a Harlan Ellison story, we have one of those too. And I, we know that you, you knew Harlan, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Those eyes go up. You probably have some really good ones. No, I'm just, looking at my girl who just, just poked her head in the room here. Oh, well, hello. No, no, please go ahead. Yeah. That's how I discovered you was raving and drooling, you know, and fangling. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It, I didn't probably put two and two together with Freddy's Nightmares. And of course, uh -huh. I am 42, but I'm, I promised you I wasn't going to ask you about a certain movie in an email earlier. Boy, you don't, you don't look that old. So it's like, I envy you. Uh, you can ask me about, you can, first of all, you can ask me about any movie you want. Second of all, um, you do know that I have brought raving and drooling back to life. No, because I haven't got a yes, a little, but no, I haven't. Is it going to be in the fa in new Fango? No, they never, they never asked me. And in fact, uh, it's like, I think that the new Fango people think I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't got any of the new ones. So I Your have Fango's all... a Vagoda. <laughs> yeah. I, are you guys, are you guys all on Facebook? Yeah. I follow you, you know, on Facebook. You know, because you know what they say, Facebook is for your parents. You know, so we are your, we are our parents at this point. We, yeah. Well, the three of us are parents. So, yeah. Uh, David, I literally passed some kids yesterday, and I I started grumbling about the music they were listening to. So, yeah, I'm officially. You never there. thought you never thought you'd become that guy, yeah, right, no. Chad? Never. 
And I'm like, ah, they could. And, and, and I never thought I'd become the that's not music, that's just noise guy. Yeah. But when, you know what? It is noise. <laughs> when, when the words, I wish they would turn that shit down, came out uh, of my mouth, I just bowed my head inside and just kept and, walking. <laughs> and I have the capacity to withstand high decibel, nasty music better than anybody. What I hate is like, it's like, but man, they start that auto tuning shit and it's oh. just like, oh, oh. I'm going to, I'm going to melt, you know, it's, it's just, and that's, but you know what guys, that's every generation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what Plato used to say, where he said, youth is loud and the world goes on. I'm sure at the time people were complaining about Peter Frampton and his guitar. (laughs) Well, I read a book called, uh, I hate new music, which you guys would really enjoy written by Dave Thompson. Look it up. You can get a copy for cheap. And it's all about how, uh, he has pinpointed uh, the day the music died, which was the day that Frampton Comes Alive was released. <laughs> <laughs> we have a friend who've met, who's met, Kevin's met Frampton. You guys heard this? I'm not going to tell that story on here, but yeah, we have a friend who met him drunk. <laughs> so, which one? Yeah. Which one was drunk? Uh, Kevin, he's he's legally blind. He's literally a blind drunk. So was he legally, yeah, was he legally drunk? Yeah, okay. Oh yes, he's been legally yeah. lots of things. Well, illegally now, most of things. I hasten to point out this is nothing against Peter Frampton because yeah. Peter Frampton used to be in Humble Pie, and Humble yeah. Pie recorded the single greatest live album in the history of live albums. Do you want me okay? to break out into thirty days in the hole? Keep going, keep going. Uh, <laughs> And I saw him in concert. I saw him in concert. Uh, uh, Robin Trower uh-huh. opened for him. How's that for an inversion? Wow. Yeah. I, I'm mystified by your life. So you wrote for Fango. You've written <laughs> books. You've Joe, written- Joe yes. hates Peter. All, all, when it comes to music, only Joe wants to talk about is 30. Hold on loose. That's not true. You have to know you have to know you have to know the discography of Frampton's Camel from <laughs> one end to the other. No, but I also How old are know, we? How old are we? Come on. We're pretty old, but and I I'm hoping you're gonna have a better time than you thought you would, but I I, I do want to get back to some some questions. What's sure. it like? So you you also write comics now, right? You're writing for you're not a comic guy, but you got Un- it. No, no, I am the most not a comic guy in history. And, because and, I'm not uh, a comic guy of the other uh, uh, the other two boneheads here, James and Chad, are the comic guys. I'm always been the move. Well, we're all movie you could guys. you could stump me on the history of comics, superheroes, the Marvel stuff leaves me ice cold. Uh, it's <laughs> it's like no, get it out of my get it out of my get it out of my carpet. You know, I'm still and, trying and, to figure out WandaVision. So how did Sandy get you to do that? Sandy King. Well, she didn't. Um, uh, the guys who got me to do it, if you know comics at all, you know who Tim Bradstreet is. Mm-hmm. These guys will. Tim's a friend of mine, and Tim has now uh, Tim is now the record holder uh, uh, for having done more book covers uh, for me, more book jackets for me than any other individual artist. And Dwayne Swarzynski, who is a hard-boiled writer who has written comics out the wazoo, Dwayne told me he has written... 175 individual comics in his uh, career. So the two tallest guys in the room, right, uh, bullied me into uh, going and meeting with Sandy. And I, I knew Sandy and John from way back. I mean, at, like like in the late uh, 80s, and we'd fallen out of touch. Well, in my head, you guys just hang out. Everyone in Hollywood <laughs> no. who ever worked in a horror film just hangs out. Nope. And you guys come over to each other's house and have drinks because – 
literally most of our guests have been, you know, these assholes in Kentucky. Yeah, they're rednecks, but they don't suck too bad. You can do their show. But you ask good <laughs> questions. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, you ask good questions. So why not extend I our, our reach and our grasp? I was going to say, you know being, what I mean? uh, having a brief time in Kentucky, putting that thought of everybody from Hollywood, Joe put, made me think of you waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning, going and meeting John Carpenter at McDonald's and drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, don't worry about it. John would not be up at 5. He would be, uh, it, he'd probably still be up playing video games at 5, smoking pot, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, yeah. he's, got, he's got a lair in, on the lower floor of his house. And uh, th this is uh, getting to the end of the story before the beginning of the story. I know, I know. Go back to your beginning. I'm so yeah, sorry. One of, one, of the, one of the greatest things about doing co comics with uh, Storm King is yeah. uh, doing the annual, because John, John is the guy who says, ah, yeah. we have to leave the house. <laughs> John is the guy who says, ah, do I have to put shoes on? <laughs> you know. And so we, the one of the few things that he would come out of the house to do is an annual signing for Storm King at Golden Apple Comics in Hollywood. Yeah. So much so that when we do uh, Tales for Halloween Night, uh, we do cover variants strictly for Golden Apple. Oh. Because they've been so supportive and everything. But after that, every year except for last year because of COVID, uh, after the Golden Apple signing, we all go to John's house and eat. And a sublime definition of paradise <laughs> is going to John's house and sitting there and watching Westerns with him. Yeah, I bet. While you eat. What, and what watching is, him identify every character actor in the Westerns. And, and the other thing he does is he watches Lakers games. And if you watch Zooms with John, you'll see him... It, like a zoom setup like this with the screen and he's always going like this because he's watching a Lakers game while he's doing the zoom, which is the, the thing that he really wants to be doing. So, so if we ever get lucky with and have John Carpenter on a show, I am not allowed to mention that I'm a Boston Celtics fan. Thank you for that tip. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You may be taking your life in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've met him a couple of times. Oddly enough, this is neither here nor there. We actually, I actually had Sandy. She said she'd do the show, and then she turned me over to her publicist, and then that's where it ended. About a she week. She turned away. you over to Liz. Yeah. Keep hammering her. Okay. Yeah. Right. I actually was going to go back to Sandy again. Going, listen, I got stopped here. I'm not going to ask you John Carpenter questions. I'm actually going to ask you about the long riders. I'm actually going to ask you about producing. I do you know what I mean? Oh, she hated working on the long riders. <laughs> oh, maybe. Okay. Well, <laughs> well now, now we know why that. that advice but, though. Ask her about ghosts of Mars. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Okay. Well, anyway, Just don't step on a landmine there, Joe. You know, it's like, okay. Well, yeah, it's hard to know, right? Because but it's, but it's, it's amazing and it's fascinating because her credits are everywhere mm -hmm. in the movie industry, you know, before anybody knew she was Mrs. John. Yes. That's, that's the thing is I, I, and I wonder if, if she gets a lot of requests just because that people are trying, because he's such a recluse, you know, and not doing stuff if they think. Well, oh, it's also every time we've, we've done New York Comic-Con, we've done San Diego Comic-Con. Um, everybody, the Storm King booth is an impressive booth. Yeah. 
at conventions. We have sofas, we have catering, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And, uh, but everybody that comes up to the booth wants to know, is John here? What's yeah. John going to do? Yeah. What would John say? You know, it's, it's like that kind of thing. So yeah, that might get a little maddening after, after a while. And she's got plenty of accomplishments on her own that she can talk to you about. I mean, all of Storm King is her doing. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I, there is no doubt in my head that those comics, that everything that happens isn't her pushing it and not him. So I have a quick question because I know Chad had to get up, but he's got a question when he comes back about, about Mr. Block, Robert Block. But I've got a question. What food are you having at John Carpenter's? As a fat man, <laughs> I've got to know, what are you eating at John Carpenter's? Oh, I got deli, deli sandwiches, chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Um, I was going to guess. Well, from it's not diet conscious stuff there. No, I didn't <laughs> think so. Deli no. sandwiches? No, John loves cookies. And so when my girl actually baked cookies for John, I mean, we're, we're golden, you know, at that point. <laughs> we but, all, yeah. But. Um, once upon a time, you, you know, because, uh, 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 Dwayne was working in comics, Tim was working in comics, Tim is very famous for working in comics. And they said, you should talk to Sandy. And it allowed me to reconnect with her after not seeing her for like a decade. And it was so ridiculous because it was like, Hey, you want to write a comic? I said, I don't know. And she goes, do it. And, uh, Dwayne was, uh, visiting me from Philadelphia. He was staying in my guest room. And uh, I said, I'm going to do, because I'm, I'm going to attempt a comic, because years before, they wanted me to write the Leatherface comic when yeah. that movie came out, uh, Chainsaw 3. Yeah. And uh, I attempted to do it, and I, and I failed miserably at, at, at comic writing. And, and my pal, uh, Mort Castle, took it over mm -hmm. and uh, saved it, because here's my name on the cover of these things, and I had nothing to do with them, you know, really. Yeah. And so I really felt like it just wasn't my idiom and I'd gotten burned and, and, and it was, and it was no good. But after talking to Sandy, I said, how about, and we started with the uh, uh, tales for a Halloween night, which is let's face it, folks. It's a horror anthology. Yeah. It's an annual horror anthology. How can you go wrong? And I just adapted stories of mine to comic book form. And uh, I've been in every issue since the first one, we just turned in number seven. Uh, and so that's, that's annual. And she goes, well, why don't you do a series for us? And, uh, I began to realize just to make the answer short enough, I began to realize this is like directing your own little movie. Yeah. These are the shots. These are the angles. These are the panels. And I am deeply involved, uh, with the artists. We do four or 500 emails on, on, on every issue. Where's the, what does this guy look like? which way is his head turned? What is the emotional attitude of this? And it is like directing a little movie and it's been nothing but fun. We did a, we did a five issue series called the standoff, which was about a, a UFO full of nasty aliens crashing into a maximum security prison. And uh, I just turned in the last issue of the new series that will debut in April uh, from Storm King, which was, we kept trying to shorten the title and shorten the title and shorten the title. So finally, now it's just called John Carpenter's Hell. <laughs> I love the fact he's just, he's just selling his name. He's just, just whoring out his name. I don't blame he's, him. He signs the comics. I, I know. 
I, I, I get it. And he, he's, and it's not like he doesn't go on every show and say the same damn thing. I have found, especially when he's talking about remakes, I have found all I have to do is sit on the couch and they reach me a check and I do nothing. It's the greatest thing on earth. Because John is like, look, look, look at it this way, Joe. It's like, John's been asked every one of these questions 4,000 times. times. Right. I want to be the guy that asks John a question he's never been asked before. And, and, and it was like, because you'll read in, there some interviews uh, with him up now. He can't avoid it because he's a rock star, you know, now. Right. Yeah. And, no, he has a whole other career. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to go to the first live show they did. Yeah. And it was like, you could just see the future unfolding, you know, like, like, like right there. But John will say, you know, he just, he, he, I love John because he so doesn't give a shit. And he'll go, why the hell would you want to ask me about that? <laughs> God, that's, no, oh, that's dumb. He goes, who cares? Let's, you know, let's watch the Lakers. <laughs> so it's, it's a, I love John. And he said some very kind things about me in the, in the, uh, he does pay attention. And he said some very kind things about me in the summary for the, uh, when we did, uh, uh, the the graphic novel all in one version of uh, of uh, yeah. the standoff and John of course writes the first story that's in every issue of Tales for Halloween Night yeah and and his and his uh, his uh, uh, the new album just came out yeah yeah and I love the music and as a father I have I have we all have children and I've thought I was like it has to be great having a a completely different third act where you just hang out with your son and play music like a rock star on the stage. Oh, not only that, not only that, but with Dave Davies' son, who they yeah. basically unofficially adopted because, you know, Dave Davies' son was abandoned by his, you know, his, his dad who was in the kinks. And, right. and, uh, and uh, the Carpenters raised him as a second son, practically. Mm-hmm. He's talked so about that. Those, so those two, so the trio is very important, but you'll notice that the road band is six guys. Yeah. All right, so moving I, on. Yeah, moving on. Chad, you had your question. Oh no, I was just so I know one of your your big mentors was Robert Block, who you know most people would know from Psycho, but he has a he has a long extensive career. And I I was just kind of curious because I was trying to find some background. How did you even meet up with him? How did how did that connection happen? Well, I I read Robert Block stories and anthologies from when I was when I was tiny, and mm-hmm. uh, I blame Scholastic Books basically, because when I was in, even before junior high school, Scholastic Books would send these catalogs around, and invariably, there would be one page on the catalog that would have books with titles like 11 Great Horror Stories, or Nine <laughs> Stories to Unnerve Your Pants, you know, or, or something, <laughs> and, 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 and go, go for the horror, because I, I, was, I was in the, uh, the, audiovisual department of the school i was listening to Edgar Allan poe lps like basil rathbone and people like that reading poe stories on right. headphones on records Amazing. um and so those those anthologies i have a uh, i have a three-foot shelf of them right over there and and they're full of lord dunsany and bram stoker and hg wells and robert block and fritz Leiber and all of those people and that was my first exposure and then in the, uh, during the period that I was describing to Joe, where I was just kind of scrambling along, trying to get people to pay me for stuff. Right. My friend, Jeff Roven in New York, who not only got me a literary agent, but he, he, he began, Jeff could write a book on anything in like a, in like a week. 
he wound up writing books for Tom Clancy for millions of dollars. And uh, he was working on a book called The Fantasy Almanac. He likes doing encyclopedias. He'll tell you who every different superhero was. He'll tell you who, you know, the encyclopedia of monsters is every monster you've ever seen in a movie. And the fantasy almanac was, as its title suggests, um, he said, I want you to write entries for me. And it was like 12 bucks an entry or something like that. And that included biographies on Richard Matheson, Robert Bullock, and another uh, science fiction writer named Otis Adelbert Klein, who I'll forgive you for not having heard of ever. James, do you know him? That, no, that, uh, uh, maybe if I read something, but no, that, that name doesn't spark anything right away. If you look him up in the Fantasy Almanac, you'll learn everything you need to know, thanks to me. So, so uh, I wrote Bob a letter, and I wrote Richard Matheson a letter, and they sent me back these very, just the dumbest questions in the world. Where were you born, and what were your parents' names, and what year? You know, just the basic, basic, basic bio stuff. And both of them sent me back handwritten answers to everything. And I began to correspondence with Bob that lasted about a decade before the first time I met him, which was in 1982. Wow. And I met him at, I met him at a convention. And uh, I met him at a convention where I had to write up his blurb or his bio for the program book. And then by that point, uh, I lived in L.A., and uh, for the next decade, I mean, it was like we, we would see him at conventions. We'd talk about Jack the Ripper together. We'd do dinners. We'd do breakfast. I'd go over to his house. Uh, 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 it was just, you know, we'd be, we, and, he, and he was this open with a lot of people who were fans. He was a very generous guy, personally. That, and fortunately, I got, a little, I got a little more of that than uh, even his favorite fans, you know, would get and it was just sort of uh, 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 he's he's an amazing force in modern horror fiction, you know, because they talk about guys like uh, they talk about Edgar Allan Poe having invented essentially the modern detective story, the modern science fiction story, and stuff like that. Bob was like single-handedly responsible for everything that we call psychological horror now. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, if if we would not have what we have today if it wasn't for him. That's all there is to it. And, and you I, wouldn't and have the approach it. to it. And another thing that Bob did was he almost single-handedly wrote all of the best post-Dead of Night horror anthology movies. Where they were all essentially like, you know, uh, issues of Tales from the Crypt or something like that. Uh, 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 all those portmanteau movies that had five stories and a wraparound, those were almost all Bob. Hmm. Let me ask you a quick question as a follow-up, because I know James is going to ask you about another author. What's your favorite Richard Matheson novel? My favorite Richard Matheson novel is probably, it's a toss-up between Hell House and uh, 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 Beardless Warriors. Okay. Mine's a toss-up between Hell House and I Am Legend. Well... The guy Hell House sometimes wins. I prefer Hell House over Jackson's The Haunting. I put an equivalent. I have a top three yeah. where that comes from. There's The Haunting. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Hell House. I love Hell House because it's like a really muscular version of The Haunting. Yeah, because you it's know? actual ghosts. Yeah. The Haunting has its charms. 
But there's another book uh, in that triad that I think is equally fundamentally important, important that knocked me out when I first read it. And that's The House Next Door by Ann River Siddons. Well, I will be watching or reading The House Next Door because I've never read it. Because it is a haunted house story where the house is brand new. Oh. Okay. And it's about three phases of owners who come in and out of the house and each of them comes to grief. And it's just a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book if you haven't read it. I have not read it. You that's another great thing about doing this show is sometimes we learn so much and that someone turns us on to this thing or that thing that leads to another thing. And, you know, it's just a rabbit hole of geekery. And we, we don't let, uh, don't let the, a really bad history of bad covers on the paperbacks. <laughs> no. Don't let that put you off of the book. No, absolutely don't, even, not. don't look at the covers at all. No, I'll take your word on it. All right, James. Sorry. I had to get that Richard Matheson in because I was just curious. Oh, I knew, I knew Richard Matheson too. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh I was going to say, not to cut James off, but I was going to say, uh, uh, my uh, John Scalari, who runs Cimarron Street Books, who's doing my massive backlist reprint program as right. we sit here, is the world's biggest I Am Legend fan. He has, what is it, 157 different editions of the book. Yeah. He That's- probably doesn't want to talk about this Will Smith adaption. I'm guessing. Oh, sure. No, he'll talk about anything that's related to I Am Legend. Are you kidding <laughs> Oh, I always say that, you know, if, if you're a Twilight Zone fan, it's it was, and you think, oh my God, that one episode, it was written by three men. It was written by one of three men. It was either yeah. written by Charles Beaumont, Serling, or Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson. And, and here's the thing. It's like, I don't think people, I don't think writers credit Serling enough as an influence. I don't think so either. And that I don't kills because me. he didn't have a bunch of books. And it was very, very important to Rod Serling to be published because his brother was published. His Robert Serling was a novelist. Uh-huh. And so the peculiar thing about that is that if you look at those Twilight Zone books that are the novelizations of Twilight Zone episodes and stuff, Rod wrote all that shit. He novelized his own stuff, which is really rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 Charles Beaumont's another one that I always talk to people about. It's like, he's just kind of forgotten or people don't remember because he- Well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Beaumont fanatic. I, I mean, I, I even wrote the flap copy for one of his books. Yeah, he died fairly young, right? Yep. I know his son. I know his son. Oh, really? Yeah, Chris. That's correct. All right. Sorry, we're getting off on a tangent. James. No, it's not only James. What, what have you got? What have and you by got the way, me? never apologize for cutting James off. Yes, we please, do it all the time. Hey, fuck you, James. You don't get it. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go back. <laughs> no, cut me off by all means because I find this fascinating because I – I need a ham sandwich. I've always been a, a, a wannabe author, and I love authors, and I love documentaries about authors and things like that. But I do have to ask if you have a Harlan Ellison story or a couple Harlan Ellison stories, because that was the first author that, quite frankly, I found fascinating, and, and I, I did get to meet him eventually. But he was terrifying and engaging, and, and I, somebody introduced me to him too young, probably. I think I was in middle school when the librarian was like, just take this book and go away. If you're interested, James and I will tell you this: what Harlan did to us once after the show. Well, I, I got nothing but Harlan stories. I'm I am actually a contributor mm-hmm. uh, to Nat Segalov's bio of Harlan. I lit fuse, right? Yeah, I've got a copy. Yeah. It's over there. 
I told him the story of how I, I encountered Harlan in 1975. And I was so taken with his routine and his stage presence that I basically stole it. And, and uh, that results in the, the person you see gesticulating before you now is Harlan's fault. And, uh, but you're was, nowhere he, near, you're nowhere near, you, you're, you're, unless you're just being nice to us, you're not as uh, oh, cantankerous as Harlan. But see, that's, that's, that's a legendary mistake. And it's like, here's the thing. The last time I saw Harlan was right before he had his stroke in, uh, in 2014, Meralta paperback show. And Richard Christian Matheson and I went over, we had to leave early. And Harlan was making his first and only appearance at the show before he got banned. And uh, <laughs> because they didn't like it because he was taking the time to talk to and sign everybody that lined up for him. And they had to give people numbers. And they closed the hall down. And he stayed outside the hall until 10 o'clock that night signing stuff for people. Yeah. Susan got fed up and took a cab home. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, we went over, Richard and I went over to just say, you know, how do you do? We got to leave. And he's like, and he was like, you know, oh, you fucking guys, don't fucking bother me. You know, it's like that. <laughs> so we leave. Two days later, I get a phone call from Harlan. And he says, Susan advises me that I may have gnawed on you guys a little bit. And I'm really sorry if I did. And, it, and, it, and he was like, please come back over to the house. Don't be a stranger. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And that's the part of Harlan that people don't know, especially people who didn't know him mm -hmm. and who repeat the shit about how, about how uh, obnoxious he could be at oh, his, at his be, worst. Yeah. But I'll tell you this guys, he was a major influence on me. Not only that, he was the major influence on this reprint program that we're doing uh, at Cimarron uh, street because the direct, inspiration for that reprint program was that series of pyramid paperbacks that Harlan did in the seventies. What was like one a month for a year. And they had uniform covers. The covers were all by Leo and Diane Dillon. And he wrote these sprawling verbose introductions for them. So by the time that they got to the book called no doors, no windows, mm -hmm. the introduction was longer than most of the stories in the book. And that indeed is what's happening to us at Cimarron Street right now. But I think that's why I love and why he I gravitated toward him. The first book, and I, I'll never forget, I was in middle school, and, and the librarian, for whatever reason, I think it's because I was a Star Trek nerd. And, and she just wanted to get rid of me. And she was like, well, he wrote an episode of Star Trek. Go away. You know, and, and it was approaching oblivion. And for some reason, right. it's the first book that I read the intro to. Because I, I, I was like, I don't, I want to read what this guy has to say. And I was rel relatively. It's young. a real, it's a, and approaching oblivion is a really nihilistic collection. Well, and it starts with the Kent State, his reflections on Kent State. Yes. And I was like, this guy's saying, like, I was young. I wasn't around for the full gestalt of, but Harlan, I was like. Harlan, Harlan marched in Selma, Alabama, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, like, like, like in, this, in, in the 60s. And it, and it was like, I think that, um, I think that uh, the rank and file of ordinary people like to take away from Harlan because he was associated with science fiction. But his association with science fiction was almost unilaterally devoted to the improvement of science fiction. That's why he was so angry all the time. Of course, well, I was angry all the time anyway. Uh, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, I'll tell you a Harlan story. 
the uh, 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 once upon a time, I have to be circumspect about certain names here. Uh, once upon a time, there was one of those signed limited editions that we all know and love. You know right. I mean? Now, this was about the period of time where the signed limited edition began to be abused by the people. Will you sign this edition and then you get a stack of pages that's like this? You know, and you go, there's only 250 copies. Why am I signing so So Harlan was in the book and I was in the book. Others were in the book. And Harlan calls me and he says, you know, I just had to sign these signature pages for that. I'm supposed to hand them off to you. There sure seemed to be a lot of them. So I go over to Harlan's house to get the pages. We're sitting around his living room and he's like, I just did some math on what the limited edition of this costs. And you know how much the publisher is making off this for the site? I said, I know it's a crime, but it's like frequently, if it's a single author collection, we, we do it to promote our own book. But this is a group of people. This is like, this is like 30 guys, 30, 30, not guys, men and women. Sorry. Right. Uh, it's like 30 writers signing this edition. And he goes, no, this isn't right. It's like, we're going to sign. If I'm going to sign 2,500 pages, I want some compensation for this. So we call the publisher up on the phone and Harlan says, I have signed these pages. Unless you pay every writer in the anthology an honorarium for signing these pages, I am putting them directly into my fireplace right now. <laughs> <laughs> and we listened to the publisher kind of prevaricate, you know, and, and it was like, okay, oh, God, Harlan, okay, calm down, calm down, you know, because it's always calm Harlan down, right? <laughs> it's like, calm down, calm down. I'll tell you what, um, for you, I'll pay you, it was some exorbitant per page rate. It was, it was like, I'll give you like 800 bucks, you know, to, 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 to sign him and, and don't do that. And he goes, but don't tell any of the other contributors that mm -hmm. I paid you. <laughs> and Harlan says, well, I've got Dave Scow is standing here and you're on speakerphone right now. <laughs> And he began calling up other contributors in the book and saying, here's what just happened. And sure enough, we each got a little check. <laughs> Thanks to Harla. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's the stories that always like when he did sci-fi buzz, the sci-fi channel segment, the sci-fi. He was very visual. He was very visually uh, present in on the sci-fi channel. Mm -hmm. But I, I think one of the things that I, I that I took away from that, and, and it's very similar, is how many times he did segments talking about, here's an author that, you know, uh, A.E. Voigt saying, you know, this we can't let this pass away without, we can't let Clarence Buddington Kellen talking about Mr. Deeds and how that used to be everywhere, and how are we forgetting this? And Well, Harlan loved Van, Harlan loved Van Vogt. And, uh, and years later, when I bought a house in Hollywood, A.E. Van Vogt's widow was my neighbor. Oh. And so I could not walk the dog past her house in the neighborhood without her giving me another book. You know, she was a very sweet lady. She's still with us. She's still with us. And thanks to a special deal that they cut with A.E. Van Vogt and 20th Century Fox, every time that 20th Century Fox does alien anything, Lydia gets another check for 25 grand. Uh -huh. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So I used to go around Lydia, sit, sit around Lydia's living room and drink Prosecco. She was trying to get me drunk. And, and it was like, drink Prosecco and eat uh, peanut butter pretzels. <laughs> what so a Lansdale, Joe Lansdale was visiting me one day. I said, you got to meet Lydia Van Vogt. Come on down the street. You know, and Joe was totally charmed. And, uh, and, and yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize because I'm now doing that. We all hang out with each other anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's but great. Now I'm, I, I, just now I know that. it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You oh, all with the coffees have... and the egg McMuffins. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> now I know it's true, but I mean that's that, that's the great part of your life. Now you have the movies, you have the books, you have the comic books, you have the magazines, and it's fantastic. And this and your stories are fan are wonderful, and they'll live on past you. And that's one hopes. That's, yeah. Yeah. No, they will. They will. Especially some of them, they'll they'll be on past you. But one of the great things about this, and one of the great things about doing this, so I do, and James and Chad, we do a lot of convention work. So we we do a lot of moderating at cons, and I love it. And that's part of the things I've missed. And one of the things that, is it all the stories that are now in your head, right? Of all the people well, you've this, got. To this is part of that. This is this is part of that though, Joe, because this past year I have done more Zoom panels readings. And interviews, yeah, could you have ever before? And it's like if you don't have a knack for it, if you don't have a knack for zooming, and I think I have at least a, a little tiny one, you know, got it down, and, and, got it down. And it's and it's like because there's so much information to impart, this helps permanentize those stories, right? That's what James says all the time. James says that a lot of what we do, what, what go ahead, James. Oral histories. It's and we we need these yeah. oral histories of of what I call fandom. I mean. The things, and that's one of the reasons we don't do just a, you know, a one subject podcast. I, I love the diversity that we're able to do and able to bring in just talking about everything that contributes to what we love as fans. And, and we and always, we should, be, we should be as free associative as possible for this, because we're going to talk about things. One, two, three, four of us are going to talk about things that people never thought we would be talking about when they first tuned into this. I hope. I hope. And what I what another thing that we love to do, not to talk about ourselves, is that we normally not. It's not because we don't necessarily love talking to actors, actors, but it's folks who are in the production, writers, production designers, directors, artists, key grips. Well, not necessarily key grips, but we should probably interview some key grips, people who are actually. Because you talked a little bit to Mick about this, Mick Strawn. Those are the people who are actually on the set who know what the movie was being made. Who who have the stories? They weren't in their trailer. Mick Strawn was on the set when I actually played Freddy Krueger. Tell that story, please. I am legit now. If you accept that, let's go all the way back to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Go ahead. If you accept that, there were two guys in the creature suit, but there were other guys who wore the creature pants for the shot where he walks past the porthole. You don't need a you don't need a, a you don't need a, a primary actor for that. Yeah. Who wore the sleeve with the arm when he reaches through the porthole, right? Yeah. Right. By that standard, I have played Freddy Krueger because I played Freddy Krueger in the trailer to Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five, which Mick was on the set for, and I'm under the baby carriage, 
And I have photographs of the little tinfoil helmet that I had to wear because they were just pouring KY into this thing. <laughs> it was raining <laughs> down on me, and my arm was about to catch fire. And I've got and I've got a uh, I've got a Freddy glove, and I've got a sleeve. And it shoots up out of the baby carriage in the in the trailer, and that was my yeah. moment of glory as Freddy. And uh, the guy who manufactured the gloves gave me one. It was a it was a, a glove that had been used in Nightmare Four with actual metal blades and, and blood still on it, which I have over there. It's, I hate to I hate to confess it's in a frame over there. But why wouldn't it be in a frame? You worked on. Oh wait, I'll show you. Watch watch yeah, this. Go ahead, work that time. Let's just make up things. So if you're listening right now, David has left the interview. He <laughs> he's tired. He's tired of us. <laughs> he doesn't want <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. We're all James. Is I don't know if you can see this or not. Oh, we can see. Oh this. yeah. That is amazing. That's awesome. Love that I wore in the trailer for Nightmare on Elm Street part five. That's uh, which, I also, which I also rewrote with no credit. A <laughs> uh, oh. thing of beauty is a joy forever. There's two things. So, by the way, you're talking about free association. I was about to go with another question, but you just said that. Let's talk about that a little bit for our fan. We have a lot of fans out there. Well, we don't have any fans, but we have a lot of people who listen to the show who who are. Oh, they want screenwriting. <laughs> oh, okay. But I don't think a lot of them understand. Todd Farmer, who had written Jason Ten, did a very good job, I think, on a previous episode of. Experience. How do I know Todd's name? Well, he wrote Jason Ten. He wrote Drive Angry. He wrote uh, oh, okay. Bloody Valentine remake. They're all directed yeah. by Patrick Lussier. Uh, he yeah. he's very similar to you in the fact that you're both originally or at one time lived in Kentucky. I thought I could get you on the show and it took over three and a half years to get you both on the show. <laughs> and I got the director and I got the directors of the movies before I got you two fuckers. <laughs> very similar, very similar. And we both hit it off. I think. But see if what, this is, if this is, but Joe, if this is my last interview, you know, this will be kind of cool. <laughs> I agree. If I get hit by a if I get hit by a bus, you know, tomorrow, you know, it's 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 like, it, hey, Dave Scow's last interview, yeah, okay. It yeah. should drive our numbers up at least five or six. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do virtually anything. But can you talk a little bit about ghostwriting, and can you talk a little bit about getting credit? Because I don't think a lot of people understand arbitration, how much you have to work on a screenplay to actually get credit in Hollywood. I'll just can you talk a little bit? Well, and maybe some of the projects speaking. that you worked on that you didn't get credit. Speaking of raving and drooling, yeah, the column, yeah, for Fangoria, uh -huh. which has now been reborn in a yeah. magazine called Bare Bones, which you can find out way more than you ever wanted to know if you go to Facebook and, and look up the links. I'm going to Let's scroll down the links on my page. My very first column for the resurrected raving and drooling was exactly about writer credit. Yeah, and it's yeah. like in an era where every monkey at a keyboard who presses a button that says render gets a credit why can participating writers on movies not get any credit and part of the part of the reason is our wonderful writers guild who wants the world to believe that only two or three people write a movie right. and yep. it's like so in this column i said now, you probably all know the, the six people that are credited for, you know, this movie, but you don't know the 17 other people uh, who 
wrote on it who aren't credited. Now, why is there not in the end of a movie? And because as you guys probably know, this is all money based. Yes. Right. It's all residual based. It's all about mailbox money. Yep. Above the line credits. And uh, a lot of people will accept a little bag of money under the table for a rewrite. And they go, no, I don't want credit. It's, it's all right. But why is there not a system where they used to have this in the 40s, where they would have a credit uh, uh, that would say additional dialogue by or something like that? Why is there not a thing at the end of the movie that says participating writers? Yep. And at our election, we can be on that list or we can say, I'd rather not be on that list. One of the reasons for this is that when the Flintstones movie came out in 1994 or whatever it was, there were 35 writers on that movie. I don't doubt it. Go to the movie and look how many are credited. Now, it's like, go to the movie. It's like, uh, uh, um, remember the damn dirty apes line from Planet of the Apes? Yes, sir. Of course. Like everybody knows that Rod Serling worked on Planet of the Apes. People who are in the know know that Michael Wilson worked on Planet of the Apes. But what they don't know is that that line was written by a third guy who didn't get any credit on Planet of the Apes, whose yeah. name has now escaped me, but I mentioned it in the column. Yeah. So if I, would, if I could effect any change in the guild, uh, I would do two things, which is like get that participating writer's credit in because you take it or you don't take it. It's not royalty based. You don't get paid any money, but you can say, Hey mom, I worked on that movie. See, look, yep. you know, just like the guy that drives a shit wagon gets a credit. <laughs> yep. You know, there, of course I, the guy that the, under current circumstances, there are so many people taking credits as producers Mm -hmm. that the guy who drives a shit wagon could technically be considered a producer. Yeah. So why not allow the option of just an in-name only credit? Because that would change IMDb significantly. IMDb will not allow uncredited writers, but they'll, they'll allow uncredited actors. Yeah. They have this big phobia about, about credit and it and it's like I can't think of any other participant in the process other than writers that are subjected to this prejudice. Well, it was a you know there's a great interview with uh, Michael Weber. He's a, he's he's a pretty popular screenwriter now. He wrote Five Hundred Days of Summer and The Disaster Artist great. to name a couple yeah. of films. He had this great story of how him and his writing partner were hired to write The Pink Panther Two. Um, and they worked, they worked tirelessly to put together the script. They had this thing laid out. They gave it to Steve Martin. They worked with Steve Martin closely. They had everything planned out. They submitted it. And then the company proceeded to hire more and more writers. Which they always do, yeah. They always do. And they got rewrote, rewrote, rewrote. And Michael Weber and his writing partner are credited as the sole screenwriters and they have all of one joke left in that movie from the original. Oh story. yeah, you're lucky if you wind up with a line of dialogue. Yeah, and it's like that's the the right writing in Hollywood, and it's always been that way. I oh mean, yeah, I mean it's it's even from the dawn of of cinema, writers have always seemed to get the shaft and turn. There there are five uncredited writers on The Wizard of Oz. Yep, right. Twas you know, ever thus. It has always been this way, and I'll tell you. Uh, 
not to do the whole, whole anecdote uh, all over again, but New Line wanted me to write Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. But I didn't have a script. I was the only asshole in Hollywood with no script in his back pocket. So I did not get the job. So we began beating the bushes to uh, uh, find something where I could prove to New Line that I could write a script. And this was the time when they were producing Freddy's Nightmares, the TV show. So we went out and eventually I wrote a script for Freddy's Nightmares, the last episode of the first season. And on the day, and this was an important day, on the day that I turned in the script within 24 hours, they hired me to write their next horror movie, which was Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Yeah. So I'm writing drafts of Leatherface. I've now, uh, I'm now in the position of the first teleplay that I ever wrote and the first feature screenplay that I ever were not only bought, but produced, which is rare. Mm-hmm. And while they're shooting Nightmare 5, it has now gone through four other writers, none of whom wants to be credited for <laughs> writing a mere Nightmare on Elm Street movie. They all use pseudonyms. Yeah. It was Les Bohm and it was Bill Wisher, you know, and all these guys. It's like, it's like, they're cool now. You know, they're cool now about it. But like, I don't want to be associated with a Freddy movie. Oh, my God. You know, I, yeah. And so after all of that, they bring it back to me while they're shooting it. And they're saying, please help us. All the dialogue in this movie blows. <laughs> and I had a guy coming to my apartment in Hollywood and literally taking pages to the set from my apartment and the irony of this is that there is more of my dialogue in nightmare on elm street part five for which i get no credit than there is in leatherface which i get for sole credit (laughs) (laughs) your friend well i'm assuming he's your friend frank darabont said in an interview one time it just makes no sense uh, how back back to what you're saying you can have a lifeless script Someone comes in, rewrites it. It's basically the same plot, the same bones, but it just brings it to life. And that piece of that fucker gets nothing. Basically, like, yeah. That gets nothing. No, and, and it's like the, the reason that I would like the participating writer credit is that you could point at a list and you could see the, the peaks and valleys of somebody else's involvement in movie. Well, where did that guy go for five years? Well, he was doing uncredited rewrites on the, on this you know, this this stuff over here, and maybe making more money. The people, at it. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. Well, we got off on a tangent on that. But That's that, all right. So let's talk about some of the directors you've worked with. Um, I find back to Alex. It was you worked with him on The Crow. We had him on the show a few weeks ago, but that was it was. I didn't know that you actually did some behind the scenes production stuff on iRobot. Did you, is that through Alex? Uh, that happened? Yeah. Not, not only that, but before I did the behind the scenes stuff on iRobot, I wrote two or three other movies for Alex uh, that were never made. Um, he asked to me to do, um, yeah, he asked me to do, if you watch Dark City, uh, at some point in Dark City, you will see a theater marquee that says coming soon, Book of Dreams. Alex started making the Book of Dreams films, the shorts, which you can see on YouTube. There are three of them. And when he had two of them done, which was Ruben's Dream and 
I forget the first. Oh, Welcome to Crateland is the first one. Uh, and I was in Sydney rewriting a movie for him called Dial M for Monster, which was a monster comedy that we never got around to shooting. Um, uh, he said, do, do you want to write one of the dreams? Do you want to write all of the dreams? I said, no, whatever you want, because he wanted to take these short films that he did like one a year. And eventually when he had enough of them, organize them into a movie that had nine or 11 different dream sequences in, as a narrative. So we constructed this thing, which was about a decommissioned government dream research project, you know, to wire it all together. In the meantime, I wrote a science fiction one, which was just a goof on every science fiction cliche imaginable in 11 minutes. And that's called Frank's dream. And you, and, the the sure the meaningless little short that we shot in our spare time that wound up taking 10 years to finish and cost a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> uh but you can see it you can see it on youtube and we never got around to the book of dreams uh movie in the meantime mark rance who ran a uh a production company called three-legged cat which was responsible for doing uh, uh, DVD supplements during the golden age of DVD. Right. Mark, uh, in 2000, we assembled all the supplements for the Crow DVD, including all my behind the scenes footage, uh, uh, a number of other interviews, including me and Alex. Mm -hmm. And we're ready to go. And then Alex got in a war with one of the producers on, uh, on The Crow with the result that when The Crow first came out on DVD, uh, not only were our supplements not included, but they cut us out of the EPK. They cut, us Al they cut Alex and I out of the EPK, uh, shortening it by four minutes. To, so it's, it's just like every time we tried to make this material into something, it got firebombed again. So that producer said, hey, Alex is shooting iRobot in Vancouver. You wanna go shoot behind the scenes? I said, absolutely. And, and, and I was, thus began my like, like eight week adventure in Vancouver uh, where the camera crew tried to have me deported uh, uh, for uh, uh, walking around on the set with a camera. This is a big A production for 20th yeah. Century Fox. It's a big fucking Will Smith movie, man. And so they said, we don't want that guy shooting on our set because, you know, uh, Canadian rules have to favor indigenous talent working on film sets and I said how about if I hire somebody who works there and I hired a guy who uh was doing video playback on the movie for one day I turned around to him and I said Quezzy you want to work for me for like the next eight weeks you know and it's sure and so now that I had a legit I have a letter in my pocket I have a legitimate Canadian union cameraman working for me then they didn't care if I ran around the sets with a camera so now we have two cameras and we're walkie talkied up and we're just like, they're shooting this over on the south they, you know, and we go over there, we get long shots, we get close shots. We were all over the place. And, and we shot all the behind the scenes for, uh, for iRobot. Well, it, it was just, I was listening to that story. And it's like, so I obviously you, the, you think it's because Alex got you the job, but clearly not. Well, no, uh, it's actually because Mark knew I could get closer to Alex oh. than an outside cameraman. He would so tolerate. The first day, let me tell you, Joe, the first day I show up in Vancouver, right? 
I go onto the set and the Vancouver crew, the ADs and stuff are saying, oh, they're not going to let you shoot on the set. They're not going to let you get close to Will. Our first AD is a monster. He's a Nazi. It's like, he's not going to let you do that. Point him out to me. Okay. His first day over there, guy looks like a stuntman, cowboy stuntman from the, you know, from the 60s. <laughs> and I walked over and I said, John Woodward, you work for my pal Frank Darabont on, on you know, uh, you were his AD. And, oh, yeah, yeah. So within five minutes, John Woodward is going here. If you come over here, you can get closer to the actors when they're shooting, you know. So it was, it was like, it was perfect. It was perfect. John was the only guy. He was the first AD on iRobot. And John was the only guy who understood my Fireside Theater jokes. <laughs> so we, we bonded like that, man. It's like, it was, it, was, it was great. And he would say, no, if you want to come over here, this is a better angle because there's not booms in the way and stuff. And it was like, and it was fun watching Will work. And it was fun watching Alex work. And, and uh, I ran into another buddy of mine. The first day that I was in Vancouver, I walk around the corner and I nearly collide with John Wu. Really? Yeah, who is up there shooting Paycheck uh -huh. at the same time. Okay, so and that explains why you have two of the killer posters behind you. Well, John, remember, he signed that one. It's like right there. But John remembered me from, uh, I met John at a um, screening of Hard, I was the world's biggest John Wu fan. Yeah. And I met him at a screening of Hard Boiled Hard at, uh, at Universal Studios. And so... We walk out, it's the Alfred Hitchcock screening room at Universal. And we walk out of the, and it's like, I take the cigarettes out of my pocket. John takes his cigarettes out. He smokes Marlboros. He smokes Marlboro lights. And I walk over to John Wu and I light his cigarette with a zippo. Close the zippo and I put it back in my pocket and I say, now, this lighter will stop a bullet from killing me. And then later, when I die in a hail of gunfire, my best friend will give you this lighter. And he laughed. He thought that was he thought that was really good. And it was like that was my John Woo cigarette moment. So he remembered me when I saw him in Vancouver. It was so weird, you know, because John Woo, he's got to meet like a thousand people, you know, out of movie yeah. or something. And he remembered me from the the Hitchcock uh, uh, theater. And he's such a cool guy. It's like I almost I got this close to writing a movie for him once. Which was it? What was it? It was a movie that he had written the first script of called Cato. Uh, uh, K-A-T-O, not related to the Green Hornet. Okay. It, it was just, it was just, and it was right in the vein of, uh, it, was, it was in the vein of Hard Boiled. And, uh, and uh, uh, we just didn't get a chance. We had a couple of meetings with, uh, with Alex Ho and, uh, and John, and it's just, they couldn't get the, you know, it was one of those times where they couldn't get the funding for the movie in America. Uh, yeah. I almost wrote a John Woo movie. Almost. Is that, the, yeah. is that one of the ones you, so, and I hate to ask these. Well, I don't hate to ask, but I know some people get a little upset sometimes. I, I did an interview with Romero, right? Well, probably about six months before he died. And I asked him what he wanted to talk about. And he wanted to talk about the things that got away. And I'm curious, uh -huh. we're not dead yet. You still got a lot of life to go, but what are the, some of the ones that got away that you would have liked to have really have done? Not that many, all things uh, considered. There, there was. Uh, uh, I wrote an episode for. Uh, I mean, one of my one of my uh, one of my first contact points with Harlan was the Outer Limits, and uh, 
because I wrote a couple of books about it. And and yeah. and uh, he's going to ask you about it in a minute. Yeah. yeah. And 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 so when the, the the revival series came around in 1995, I I lobbied very heavily to write for that show, and I regret it to this day. Uh, <laughs> it, it was it was like that was one of the cases where you get to see your script butchered beyond belief, right. and uh, by by committee. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was a catastrophe, and you just try to try to disown it, and virtually nobody brings it up to me anymore. Uh, uh, it's more fun if people bring up Masters of Horror or lately Creepshow. You know, yeah, yeah, I really liked. I I actually really enjoyed Creepshow. I just finished watching it. I do a, a review for a local horror convention called Scarefest, and it's a weekly thing. And I just uh, finished it probably a month or two ago, and I was surprised, even with the low budget how much I enjoyed it and how well it's done. Oh my God. Those, those half hour segments were shot in three days. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's amazing. I literally watched Greg Nicotero shoot two shows at the same time. He would run from one end of the soundstage to the other and he would look at the setups on his phone and then he would run over to the next set and call action cut and run back to the first set and call action cut. I mean, I don't know how he did it. They're really I've I've told these two guys they need, they need to get Shutter because uh, Creep Show is pretty good. I, I I've enjoyed it. it. It's been it's been good. James, question. I, I well I, I saw uh, happened to spy not to be a voyeur, but I noticed that you do have a little outer limit something on your desk, and uh, uh and and when we were oh, getting yeah. ready for the interview, okay. I was I I wanted to. Uh, you know, I wanted to look and I was like, oh, that would be really cool to get the Outer Limits Companion. And evidently the original press of that, it's out of print and people want a lot of money for that. <laughs> oh, uh, the last edition, which was done in 1998 is, you know, it's, it's 20 years old already more. And, and uh, the tragedy of this, uh, this may be changing very shortly because we've got proofs for the, the revised, what we're calling the Ultimate Outer Limits Companion. It's been finished since 2017, but we've had some licensing issues, which may uh, actually go away this year, I'm hoping, uh, because it is this huge expansion of the book. And just to drive people who are fans of the show crazy, uh, as expanded as the book is, this is the, uh, this is the ViaVision Blu-ray set from Australia. Mm-hmm. Ah. Now, just to drive everybody crazy, Kino Lorber did the Blu-ray set in 2019, and we did a shit ton of supplements that are all off of my shelves right here, and audio commentaries. Just to piss everybody off, we added more supplements for the Australian set. <laughs> just to piss everybody off even more, we talk about stuff on the supplements on the Australian set that aren't in the book. <laughs> Maybe you because are Orleans. It keeps <laughs> expanding. You know, it's it's like to be a true we want people to demonstrate that they're true purists. Yes, you have to go all the way and, and read the book and listen to the commentaries and do all that other stuff. But the um in the category of uh lost masterpieces, if you will, there were two. Um there were in the wake of the crow there were i had meetings on every you would not believe i had meetings on every friggin comic book movie imaginable i can imagine because it was i'm of that age we're of that age 
And you talk, you've talked about it in interviews of, oh my God, no, no, here comes one who's going to ask me that question and I don't want to talk oh, about sure. it. Yeah. And you get that all the time, but I, I'm of that age of those people. And I don't know, I, sh my wife's seen it and she just doesn't have the same attachment to it. She goes, oh yeah, it's cool. And it's like, no, 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 this is revolutionary at the time. Well, it, it, it had to be there. Right. You know, temporarily. Yes. And, it, and it was like, I think that makes a lot of different, it changed a lot of people's lives. And I have to tell you guys, uh, like I've said in other interviews, it's like, it's like there's movies that people like, movies that people cherish. And then there's something like this, which is tinged by the disaster of uh, uh, Brandon getting killed while we were shooting. Right. And uh, it makes it completely different because it assumes a mythic status as a movie. But most of the people who watch the movie will not go to Brandon's grave in Seattle where he is buried next to his dad and yep. see people leave bottles of booze, flowers, greeting cards. Every, the grave is just covered with this stuff. Yeah. And you pick it up and look at it because there's a bench there where you can sit there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you pick up this stuff from my standpoint uh, you pick up this card and people have written on the card lines of dialogue that you wrote. Oh man. Yeah. You know, oh. are on the grave. So, you know, don't, but to get to your earlier point, yeah, you can block that stuff up, but eventually you have to learn how to cope with this for the people who are not going to stop asking those questions. Well, it's so much part of the zeitgeist. And, it, and, and it's not, and it's not unfair to ignore their curiosity. No, but it, I find uh, a lot of it is shitty journalism <laughs> by people it's, who probably... It's very easy, but I've written shitty journalism in my life, and I know very clearly where the line of abuse is. Right. And so, unfortunately, it took me all this time to, you know, to get there, to get there. But in the wake of The Crow, um, there was a period of time where I was writing these two gigantic movies at the same time, neither of which got made. What were they? Which was the catastrophe. One was for uh, Lightstorm and 20th Century Fox. Mm -hmm. And the other was for Interscope. And I can't talk about the Lightstorm one too much, but the, 20th, uh, the Interscope one was a movie version of a series they had on MTV called Dead at 21. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And both of these were enormous projects i mean i had to go into a room and sell this thing to ted field at, at, at interscope polygram you know uh in in 15 minutes and uh uh which reminds me of the story where i had to sell michael bay a movie in 15 minutes but we'll get to that in a second i did that too yeah i did that too uh uh but unfortunately it was it was sad they were very uh you proceed on these projects with the assumption that it's like wow we we got this is practically a green light. You know, I can't believe it. We're going to be shooting this movie in six months. And it's huge. I mean, it's gigantic. And it, and it doesn't happen. Yep. You know, for one reason or another, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And then pretty soon you find yourself changing representation and, and, <laughs> and it all ends. How do you but, cope with that? I'm sorry. I was gonna say, and, and I was going to say with that, I mean, every project you pick up, do you go into it going this is going to get made or, or is that mentality there of, I know this is never going to see the light of day. You can't, you can't write something. Uh, uh, you can't write something 
conscionably, uh, Chad, if you don't believe it's going to get made. Okay. Because you have to visual every, every step of the writing is you have to visualize it getting made in your head in order to get it down on paper. And so you go in with the best of intentions and it's like one of those hope for the best and prepare for the worst, you know, scenarios. But how do you emotionally deal with that? So we've had some letdowns and we're, I always say I'm a failed filmmaker, you know, our short films didn't quite pan out and whatnot, but we've made the best of what we can. However, how do you deal with the just, because you never get to that point in Hollywood. There's very few ever do where, all right, I'm going to make movies till I say I'm done. They, you never get to say when you're done. They say when you're done. Now you're done when you fall over on the on the keyboard and just you know, <laughs> right, right. And they and find you, your and they find your body, but but I mean, and your best project's always the next one. Well, it it goes all the way back to selling something to a newspaper that has no reason to buy something from you, which is that I am I am unemployable in any other field <laughs> at this point. Uh, so. I have to, you know, find ways to make it work or hope people remember uh, what I'm doing and, 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 and picking it up, which is what happened on, you know, Masters of Horror, what's happened on Creepshow. Um, these all came, you know, from people that I, I met when I first moved to L.A. Yeah. So, yeah, by and large, uh, you know, a lot of it is people you know, but more of it is people that remember you. Positively. Right. For doing one thing or another yeah. yeah so pick me up as james and i we, we were talking about this and chad as well but james and i james quotes one of those lines from pick me up all the time james you want to do it we won't do it justice not my victim <laughs> I, I i have literally i'll be honest I before have we ever that. did it for years he said he says it all the time he and, does all the time, all the time. <laughs> that was fun to shoot man I, I, there's something I, I, I love masters of horror, but if, if you hold a gun to my head, there's two or three episodes that stand out and pick me up. Cause it was always the thing that I heard my parents say, right? Like, Oh, right. truck drivers kill people. Uh, you yeah. know, there's, there's one or two bad ones, but you got to assume they're all. And then, Oh, and hitchhikers never pick up a hitchhiker. And then to see that. And I can remember watching going, going, oh. going like this. Yeah. It was, it was literally, I, I just wanted to almost call my parents and be like, listen, I've got to show you something. And it's just because you have <laughs> scarred me so much that now I watch this and be like, they were right. Mm. So oh, what, makes me, what makes me nuts is that, is that Larry Cohen shot that, yep. directed that. And uh, I get up to Vancouver and, Larry's, and, and Mick tells me, this is the first thing that Larry has directed that he didn't write himself. Yep. He picked oh. it. He picked it up. They talk about and, that in the King Cohen documentary. Have you seen it? I'm in it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, how did that, can you give us your best Larry Cohen story? Uh, I, just, I think I just did. He, he, uh, he, uh, it, yeah. yeah, because the great thing about Larry is that uh, if you wanted to experience uh independent filmmaker maverick school live that's larry it's like he sits there it's like he doesn't look at he doesn't there's no video village there are no monitors he stays six feet away from the actors at all times and he goes he knows exactly which takes he wants from watching him he never looks at a, a screen to decide and we would get the dailies 
on the uh, on the set. They would come on disc from the previous day. Larry would hand them to me over his shoulder, and he goes, "Go to my trailer and look at these. Tell me if they're any good." <laughs> That's a lot of access for a writer, man, on a set, right? Yeah, yeah. I was glad I, I did it. I did it on both my uh, uh, Masters of Horror, and I think there are reasons for having a writer on the set. And this goes back to the crow uh, because they go, well, the movie's written. What the hell are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but we're rewriting the movie every day yep. and we're shooting at night. So at lunchtime, which is about two o'clock in the morning, uh, the storyboard artist, a friend of my Peter, a friend of mine, we would go to Alex's trailer at lunchtime and find out what we were going to do for the next 24 hours. I need to change this scene. So it's like this, I need this dialogue. So it's like this. So what else does a writer do on the set? Well, among other things, come up with every inscription and name in the cemetery, come up with every business name on the main street and all the signage in the windows. The art department was knocking on my door constantly. What does this look like? What does this sound like? What does it say? How does it do? What do the billboards say? You know, it's like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was busy. I was on that set for uh, over a hundred days straight. And, uh, and it was like, there was always something to do. If Alex didn't want me to do anything, there was something the art department wanted me to do. It's a great learning experience, though. Oh, it's, 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 it's unmatched. There's nothing like it. Which is why making movies can be, you know, a, an enormous amount of, uh, of fun at the same time. It's just sort of like to get in there and play with those toys. To look at Alex Proyas when he's walking through the six blocks of Vancouver that we redressed into a future city, watching him walk through this thing that he imagined and that somebody created for him. You know, there's nothing like that. Unless somebody goes out of their way to invent something that was in your brain, you know, you can't, you, you can't know. That's why I think that's why everybody wants to do it so much. It's not for, it's not to get like pop culture fame or anything like that. It's just like, I, you get I, to walk, you get to walk through your dream. I completely agree with you. I don't know that anybody does it for the fame. Well, there's probably some people who are in front of the camera who may do it for the fame, but I, I don't know anyone that does the behind the camera stuff for the fame. I've never met them. Oh, no, yeah, sure well, no, yeah, who, who knows who, who, who in, in the ordinary world knows who the DP is, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, right, I, and I've, been friends, I've been friends with DPs. I've been friends with some of those famous DPs in the industry, Conrad Hall, uh-huh. you know, Bill Fraker. Both Outer Limits guys. That's how I met him. You're just, you're just just geeky. You're more geeky than we are. Which are we oh, love yeah. about you? We well, love how do you, yeah, how do you think I got here? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know we're running a little long. James, you said you had I, one more I, I, I did want to ask this because I think it's, it's interesting because you've seen your work adapted in the film. Sure. And you've also taken, you know, James O'Barr, for example, his work and adapted to film. And I I, I read The Crow as a book, and it's a very, the, the graphic novel is very visual. The, the, the scene that always sticks with me that I don't know if it could ever be adapted to film is the horse getting tangled in the wire and, and, right. and all of that. Um, what, is, what is the response when you adapt something? Do you have any stories about James O'Barr? What, did, what was his kind of take on how well, it got adapted? James came to the set when we were shooting. And I actually, I actually got him on video stealing a TV set from the pawn shop while everybody was like, like, <laughs> why the fuck was he stealing the TV? Oh, you can see it in the movie. You see this one shot of him running off, you know, and, and, uh, but at the time that we did the movie, the comic wasn't finished. 
Oh. Uh, we, we had three issues, and then we had the last two. The end was a two-parter that was a set of incomplete pencils that we had. And we were sort of kind of left to our own devices to kind of devise not only an arc for this, but an ending for this. Because uh, I, I don't know, I don't know whether either even uh, James was capable of saying at the time how conclusively, you know, it would finish. And so we're just trying to go, what makes sense? Well, now we got Brandon's input. Now we got Alex's input. And writing that movie consumed most of 1992 for me. It started in late 19, it started like in September of 91. And then in January 93, we're on the set and we're still writing the damn thing. Yeah. So that, it was like, you know, you got to figure out how to make that. You, you need people who are experts in contract renewal because <laughs> there, there are so many intermediate drafts that no one is ever going to see. This is another writing thing, by the way, uh, because if you're doing a new draft, technically a new draft every day of production, there is no definitive draft of this movie. And agents asked us for a draft of the movie to show somebody one time. And we had to literally cut and paste one together because we didn't have one. Yeah. We didn't have one that represented the movie, you know, that everybody was, was watching. And so we had to go for those blue pages, those pink pages, those yellow pages. We went into colors that are not in the rainbow or the spectrum. <laughs> they had to invent new colors for our revision pages. It was ridiculous. That makes sense. We did the same. We do the same thing with the little short films that we did. We rewrote them and rewrote them and rewrote them. You're always trying to get it the best that you can to before as you go. Because it's, a, because it's an organic process. If yeah. you have to wire every detail down so tight that it can't breathe or can't move, when you get on a set, you're going to discover, oh, fuck, we have to cut three pages. What are we going to do? How are we going to cover these three scenes outside with one scene indoors? Yep. You know, because we got to decide on the fly and in the moment. Yeah. All right. So I know we're running a little long and I didn't actually, I, I, I made a faux pas, but not asking you when you're, when you had a heart out. So I'm going to assume that we're at an hour and a half and that's a long time, but I've got it. There's a couple of people I want to ask you about. I'd love to talk to you about Frank Darabont, but what I'm going to ask you is your best Michael Bay story, because we've had a few good ones on here. Oh yeah. One of them uh, was, was it William Sandell? He was the production designer on the Flintstones. Did he tell the tell us that story after we cut the camera? I think he did. I think he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's your best Michael Bay story? I have a good Michael Bay story. It's like good. it's like uh, uh, when we uh, they wanted a new writer. Platinum Dunes wanted a new writer on Texas Chainsaw: The Beginning, and uh, uh, a friend of mine who had vanished from my life for the better part of a decade because he was off. Uh, selling Lord of the Rings to the world <laughs> for a, a, a new line. Came back to town. And literally eight years later, I get a phone call from him. And he goes, okay, so where were we? You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, he says, no, I have some things for you. And I went to his office and he pulls this script off the top of a bunch of scripts. You know how they write on the spine of the script in oh. marker and the marker misses most of the pages when you, which you can still tell what the title is. It's like they pull it off and, has, and it says chainsaw. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 stick with me, stick with me. They're making this. It's a done thing. Uh, and, and all we got to do is, is convince them that you're the right guy to, to write this for this, this process. So, okay, fine. 
but we got to pitch it to Michael. And it's like Michael Bay is currently busy filming the island at a defrocked aircraft manufacturing plant in uh, Downey. So we walk into the aircraft plant. Michael Bay has built a 500,000 square foot set with working elevators. You know, we walk in on the outside. Five minutes later, we're walking. We still haven't gotten to the center of the set. You know, <laughs> and uh, uh, it says, "Okay, you know, Michael's shooting, but you know, he want he just wants to make sure you're okay for this. You tell him the story." And so there's this bank of monitors, this video video village, and Michael's like, "Action!" Okay, cuts. Ewan McGregor and the Scarlett Johansson. It's like. Okay, cut. And then Michael and I run off into a corner and we do this for five minutes. We're talking to each other and then he's nodding and he's doing the same thing. And then he runs back to the monitors and he goes, action, cut. And then we run back into the corner for five more minutes and we're waving our arms like great. And it's like, bam, you're hired. So um, I've been on sets before. I know how to be on sets. I know how not to trip over cables. I know how to knock, not knock light stands over, you know, uh, uh, and stuff. And so I have a certain degree of pride in my ability to be invisible on a set. And I'm standing there watching Michael direct the scene. We're done talking. We're going to leave. I just want to hang out for a little while and watch. It's a big budget, big budget motion picture you know, kind of thing. And an AD walks over to him and he goes, uh, don't stand here if you can avoid it. And I thought, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? Am I in the wrong place? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's not that. He goes, when Michael gets mad, this is where he throws the monitor. <laughs> wow. But, all, but that all said, you know, that all said, Michael was nothing but decent to me. He got me a great job, you know, six months of work that <laughs> I really didn't get a lot of credit for, but I was paid well for, you know. Yeah. We and at that time, and what happens, what happens at that time? You have to write that movie as though you're convinced they're going to make it. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll tell you our Michael Bay story maybe later. It's also about anger issues. We can do it. Yeah, yeah we can do it when we're not eating up your episode right. time. You know? Right, right, right. So. Uh, my one last, my one thing is, is there, what's that? Is there a two, this is kind of a two-parter. Is there a book? Is there an idea that you just got to do before you leave this, this plane of existence? And why have you never directed? Uh, Mick asked me about directing too, and I never really felt the drive to direct. I mean, I've seen it drive people crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and it seems to me you have to be answerable could I do it? Possibly. I know enough about it from observation that I could probably fake it really well. Or if the production was small enough. It's not to say no. There was an opportunity that came up about 15 years ago for shooting something uh, in Australia that, uh, that a producer wanted to hire me to do, and it just never, it never came to pass. And I thought, that was the, I thought that was the opportunity, and it sailed past. Mm -hmm. at that time i've never actively pursued it i've never asked to direct anything like that uh uh but it's you know it's it's not it's not uh it's not out of the realm of possibility and what was the second part 
I want to know that dream project, whether that's that book you want to write, whether that's book you want to adapt for film, whether there's just this idea in your head that won't let go, that's something you've got to get on the screen. I, well, I, I, I have to, in, in, you know, in response to that, I have to talk about Storm King again, because Storm King has allowed me to uh, express in long graphic novel narrative form a lot of the very ideas that you're, that mm -hmm. you're talking about. If somebody decides to adapt a novel of mine or something, I certainly like a crack at it, but it's not completely necessary because two of my friends are uh, uh, the Nelms brothers who just did Fat Man and they did a spectacularly good modern noir called Small Town Crime. And they were hot to do uh, a book of mine, but they wanted to write the script themselves. And I said, because from everything that I can see, the way you guys put movies together, you guys know what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm not wor and I'm not worried about it. If you want me to have a chance to have some input, that's great. But if you want to take it and run with it, take it and run with it. Because I have enough other projects out there that I'm not gonna I'm not going to uh, saw the violin about losing that one. And my name is still on it. It's my source material. I invented those characters in those situations. So they showed me a script that they had done. I went, wow. This is pretty good. It's full of things that I hadn't ever thought of, but it's pretty good. So I'm actually, to short answer to the question, I'm actually getting a chance to do those now. I mean, uh, uh, the last novel that I did with Subterranean Press publishing it was called The Big Crush. And that was kind of like my ultimate assassin novel that I always wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And it started out just, just thinking about, I want to write a book that has nothing but professional assassins as characters. You know, and it came out pretty good. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it. Now the, now the thing is you got to get people to notice it, you know? Yeah. So that leads me to where can they get all your work? So let's say they're listening right now and they're like, I have got to get the next novel. Where can they get all that? Well, there isn't a next novel until I do my next hard case crime paperback, which has been delayed for about five years as I screw around doing other stuff. Right. It's all on Amazon, but I have to point out the Cimarron Street uh, reprints of my backlist, which we started doing last June. We've been doing a book a month, mm -hmm. me of the month club. Uh, but these are, brand, you, you know, you had wild hairs, right? Yep. Yep. The only right difference here. between the old version of Wild Hairs and the new version of Wild Hairs. Right here, Wild that, Hairs. He signed it for that, me in 09. Is that the new version of Wild Hairs has a red thing on the bottom of it. That's the only okay. difference? Yes. Because that was, it was our experimental reprint to see if the system could work, to see if we could use Amazon as a printer. And it's worked out very well because our mission, if you only do one book, nobody's going to see it. But if you do a book a month, and we've now done six, seven now, because one just dropped yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, pretty soon our, our objective was to get a foothold on the algorithm. Yeah. So that uh, when you get this version of Wild Hairs, for example, mm -hmm. it now leads you to the other books that we did. And the other books that we did are remixed versions of my collections. I wanted to add stuff to them. I wanted to add long, uh, explanatory, semi-autobiographical afterwards, just like Harlan would have. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had an opportunity to actually illustrate the title pages of a lot of these things. So these are like definitive preferred text editions. 
and we've got them all lined up for the rest of this year. And we're already seeing them on Amazon. Uh, one copy will refer to another copy. And so John, who runs Cimarron Street, now you can go to the CimarronStreet.com. Okay. And they, and which is also the enterprise that does Bare Bones Magazine. And mm -hmm. Bare Bones Magazine is the place where you will find the new raving and drooling. We're now in our fifth installment. And so John says, why don't we do a sampler of everything that we're doing? And I said, why don't we do a sampler? It's cheaper than any book in the series. And why don't we do a sampler as the lost issue of an imaginary pulp magazine that never existed? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> called Weird Doom. Okay. And here, this is this is this is it, except for the uh uh, the band that indicates that it's approved, but this dropped yesterday. And this yeah. is Weird Doom with a Bernie Wrightson painting as a cover, by the way. Wow, Bernie oh, Wrightson. We love Bernie. It costs 999 cents. And got it's it. Like, and it's got, it's like, it's like eight strange tales of Weird Doom. And it's a sampler of everything we're doing for Cimarron Street to give you a taste of what we're, what we're up to. It's got one of the columns. It's got an afterword. It's got several stories, and it's full of art by my friend uh, Hal Robbins, who did us a terrific logo in the spirit of Weird Tales. Yeah, you know, and it'll cost you, you know, ten bucks. Uh, so order it tonight or tomorrow. I was gonna say as, as soon as I'm done here, I know where I'm going. That well, is great. Do, but but if you do, if you do, will you guys let me know what you think of it? Of course. If you yes, want to know, absolutely. absolutely. Great, excellent. One of our great privileges was meet, meeting Bernie beforehand. And I have an original creep show over here that on my wall, one sheet that, yeah, that I just think the world of. Bernie Wrightson was such a, his Frankenstein. We could talk about Bernie for another hour. Listen, right. I moved Bernie in and out of every, every apartment he had in LA, okay? It's like <laughs> I loved his boxes of shit, so I know. But you see this? Yeah. Joe, you see the painting? It's actually a wraparound painting. Oh yeah. See? Oh yeah. Love Bernie's work. So yeah, we can go we can go to Amazon or Cimarron. Yeah. Go to okay. Cimarron first and then go to Amazon. Got it. Go to Cimarron. Oh, that is, that is beautiful. Epic. All right, David. The next time we're in LA, we're we're crashing at your pad. Yep. We got a guest room. All right. That is oh I I just got my. You second can see, you, and if you do, you can see all the other original Bernies I got on the wall in the living room. And uh, while I'm uh, making a sandwich at midnight, holding the glove in my hand, Joe. Did. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, we've had an we've had a great time. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it as well. Go. Yeah, to we'll we'll do more in the future. Thanks. That's awesome. Oh, please, please. Go yes. to Amazon. Look up David Scow. Check out his work. Check out CimarronPress.com. Cimarron Street Books. Cimarron, Cimarron Street Books. Cimarron Street, uh, Cimarron Street is an I Am Legend reference, if you don't know it. I, I told you, I Am Legend and Hell House, man. Okay. My two favorite Matheson books. All right, this has been Bonehead Weekly. Grrrr. <sniffs>